Well, if you haven't opened your Bibles already this morning, would you join me in 1 Samuel chapter 7? 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14 will be our key text this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. If you're our guest or hadn't been here, let me tell you a little bit about our series, Revive Us Again, as you see on the screen, a survey of Old Testament revivals. Now, depending on how you count, there could be 10, maybe 12 different revivals where the people were away from God and did something significant and came back to a close relationship with God uh, as his people in the Old Testament. We're surveying just seven of those in, these, uh, uh, in this fall series here with us. It's interesting to note that I just told you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you were to go back to chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, when it says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. If you go back to chapter 1, you see that God gave Samuel as a special child, and his mother dedicated him to service to God and left him uh, at the temple and would come see him annually. But you note then the decline of the people, even as evidenced by the priest Eli who would not stand up to his wicked sons, and the prophecy even against the house of Eli in the end of chapter 2. And then there in the beginning of chapter 3, those poignant words that tell us the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. In other words, the people were so far away from God that God wasn't showing up. God didn't speak to them regularly. That's the climate in which Samuel was born into, in which he was growing to be a man, in which he was going to be called to minister and serve God. So for us, as we look at this idea of revivals in the Old Testament, we took a scripture memory verse of the month from the one last week in Exodus, and we'll put that on the screen. And it's a promise to us, and it gives us hope of what will come when we seek God. Let's say it together. Exodus 33, 14. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Exodus 33, 14. Your scripture or your sermon outline asks a question of you at the very top. Why do I need to return to God? Why do I need to return to God? Now, uh, that's about Israel, but what about you and me? Why, that question in itself assumes that we've wandered. It assumes that we've fallen away from God. It assumes that we've sinned. It assumes that we've allowed habits to get in our way of a right relationship with God. And I didn't ask how we need to return to God. I didn't ask when we will, but Or why is what I did ask, excuse me, do I need to return to God? We consider as we move through the text. So if you're with me there in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word. And we'll read verses 1 through 14. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Verse 2. 
It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim, and that all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On the day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that He may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point of beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was uh, against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territories from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Let's pray together. Our Father, we read these words and we understand some of the conflict and some of the things, but we realize that there's more to it in the history and more we need to understand there. But more so, God, we ask that you'd help us to understand what's going on spiritually and what that means for us. How is it that we should respond to a text like this? What are you trying to say to us about committing ourselves fully to you? And serving you alone, rather than seeking to divide our times and be in control of our own life. God, speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated, church. 20 years is a long time. Now, to those of you who have lived longer than 20 years, particularly if in your 70s or 80s, 20 years may not seem that long. But some of you are not yet 20 and you can't even imagine 20 years. 20 years is a long time. In 20 years, the ark of the Lord, the symbol of God's presence among the people, was basically in storage. As we read there in verse 1, in Abinadab's house, on the hill. And they consecrated or set aside his son Eliezer to guard the ark of the Lord. I have to wonder if they only set aside one dude to guard the ark of the Lord. It wasn't like it was under any threat. That nobody wanted to come visit. Nobody wanted to come worship. 
And Eliezer was just hanging out there like on the backside of the desert for 20 years with the ark of the Lord. But notice something happens. What we don't see recorded here in 1 Samuel is that because the land of Israel is right along the land of Philistia, and the Philistines are along the coast of the Mediterranean, the, is, Israel is you know inland uh, 50 to 100 miles, depending on where you're at and the time and where their border lines went, that they were always in conflict. And the Philistines just seemed to be uh, more warlike, more ruthless, and they were always after the Israelites and their land and their crops and their people, and always after them. Your first point on your outline, your first point on your outline as we consider this idea of serving God alone, says committing myself to serve God alone. It says committing myself to serve God alone, because look at verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained there at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. I don't believe, and it's not the verb tense in the Hebrew, that they mourned and sought after the Lord all 20 years, but somewhere along the way in that 20-year period, things got bad enough for them, and they realized things had gotten been better before, and they heard the stories of their parents and their grandparents from the past, and they thought, you know, things could be better for us. We had this relationship with God, and when we walked close with God, things were good. But since we've been far away from God, things are not good, and maybe we need to turn back. It would seem like in the life of Israel that there were these pendulum swings, right? That way over here, they're away from God. And then they come back most of the way to a right relationship with God, and they get some blessings and things get better, and then they wander back away from God. And then they cry out to God because things get bad enough and they come back most of the way to a right relationship with God. And then they get blessings and they start wandering away from God until it gets so bad again that they get far enough away. You look at the book of Judges, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's what's happening. The people were not committing themselves to serve God alone. The people were serving God with half of their heart, doing things their own way. They're treating God like he's an ATM machine. Whenever they need a fast cash, they're like, hey, God, give me what I need. I get back and things are better. Okay, things are better. And I'm going to go back and take control of my life and things are going to get bad again. They're treating him like he's a Santa Claus God. And they just ask for him what they wish and try to be nice. But they weren't committing their whole heart to him. What we find out when we're doing things our own way is that sin is a lie. It promises freedom, but it leads to bondage. Sin's a lie. It promises us freedom. We're in charge of our own life. We do things our way. I'll make myself happy, we tell ourselves, but it leads to bondage. That's the lie of sin. It looks free and freeing, but it's enslaving. Look at verse 3. And Samuel and the whole house of Israel said to the whole house of Israel. Now, I don't know how he said to all of them at one time. They're scattered in all these towns or villages. Did he send out messengers? We don't know. But he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of all the foreign gods and commit yourself to serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So God used the negative, the painful the fearful, the frightening, the wickedness of the Philistines to rattle the cage of the Israelites enough time that they finally decided, you know what? Maybe we need to turn back to God. 
Maybe we need to commit ourselves to him. But notice what Samuel said to them. If you are returning with all your heart. What's he tell them to do? Rid themselves of all foreign gods. Wholehearted fellowship with the living God requires that we get rid of all of the little G gods in our life. The little G gods, those things that we worship and spend our time and our effort on, but they're not God. And that we commit ourselves to God. The Hebrew phrase here literally means establish your hearts. Set your hearts on God. Like building a house on a firm foundation. Establish your hearts and serve Him only. You can't just empty out the evil. you got to put in the good. Something's got to fill that space. And God alone is the one to do that. Samuel calls them to serve God only. You have a question there and your first major point, and that is, how do I show God my heart? How do I show God my heart? Samuel is saying to them, you've got to do some things. You've got to have some action. Rid yourself of all foreign gods. Commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. But what did he say at the beginning there in verse 3? If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts. So my question for you and I is, how do we show God our heart? Is it just our actions that demonstrates our heart to God? Is there something that we can do in three steps? Rid ourselves of all foreign gods, commit ourselves to Him, serve Him only? What do we do to show God our hearts? There's one other thing we didn't talk about here. I mentioned that the oppression of the Philistines that kept attacking them over this 20-year period when they were off doing their own things before they finally cry out to God and say, it's got to get better, God save us. But Samuel was preaching during this time. Yes, we read in chapter 3, verse 1, that the word of the Lord was rare and people didn't have visions, but Samuel was God's Preacher, if you will. God's prophet. And he was about his work. And he had to have been, as God called him, going here to say this, going there to say that. That that was his job, so to speak, before God. And so these two factors, both the negative things that were happening in their life and maybe the positive and or the negative, depending on what God had Samuel say, that was coming to them, reminded them that there could be a better relationship with God if they would just turn to him. It reminds me of David's charge to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9. You can write that down, 1 Chronicles 28.9. When it's, David says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. If you seek him, he will be found by you. We've heard that sort of repetition at other points in the Old Testament. And it's true because God's character never changes. If you seek him, he will be found by you. So the first thing they did 
Samuel told him, commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And let's look at the second major point on your outline is consecrating myself to serve God alone. Consecrating myself to serve God alone. Yeah, you got two C's. Wait till you see the third point. It's got a C as well. Pastor couldn't pass up the alliteration. Look at verse five. Then Samuel Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. Now, Jerusalem is at about 2,400 feet. It's on a mountain, sure enough. And it's a mountain that's got valleys all the way around. And it's a noteworthy place because of that. The house of God there, Jerusalem. But then Mizpah is higher. Mizpah is actually at 2,900 feet. And it's, it's just five miles away. But it means watchtower. Because from Mizpah, you could look down on Jerusalem and you could keep watch over it. And I don't know why it was that Samuel called them to assemble at Mizpah, but maybe something in the name, maybe something in the elevation, maybe something in God's plan. That he calls them together at Mizpah and he says, I will intercede for you. What we don't know is, did the revival already happen or was there revival happening? We can't say what was in the people's hearts. Was it until he interceded? But one fact about revival is this, that there can be no lasting work of God in revival without dedicated intercessory prayer. You might need to write that one down. There can be no lasting work of God in revival without dedicated intercessory prayer. That somebody who believes in God, who is a follower of Jesus, prays for themselves and prays for others in their church, in their community, in their state, in their nation, in their world, and prays dedicated day in, day out that God would bring revival. Whatever it takes, God would bring revival. Revival, a turning of hearts back to him. Samuel says, I will intercede for you at Mizpah. What was special about Samuel? God had called him. God had anointed him. The leader of the people as God's spokesman. The reason we've had seven weeks of prayer for revival this summer was to call us to revival. The reason we're preaching on revival now, call us to revival. But we need you daily to pray for your own life that you would have personal spiritual revival. That we would be acutely aware of sin. That we'd be humble and broken when God convicts us of sin. That we'd confess it before Him. That we'd repent and turn from it. Look at verse 6. When they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted. And they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of the people at Mizpah. Nowhere else in the Old Testament does it command or do we see that God told his people to pour out water to him. We're going to see if you can still hear me while I'm walking out through here. I don't think you can hear me anymore, but if you can... I'm going to the refrigerator. I'm getting my water pitcher. 
You see, I like to drink a lot of water. And this is my pitcher. And if you don't know so, it says Pastor Aaron's. Please leave here. And it stays in the bottom left corner of the refrigerator in the kitchen. And what was it about pouring out of water? If I pour this water out, don't freak out. It's carpet. It'll dry. (laughs) On this carpet, can I collect this water back up and put it in this pitcher? I got a little bit. I mean, it's sitting up on top of the carpet. It's not like dirt. But even with the filter, I didn't get enough that I can really drink it. Why did God command them to pour out water? Or why did Samuel choose to pour out water? When it's poured out, it can't be put back in. It was symbolic of the turning of their hearts towards God. That they were giving God everything and confessing all their sin. And they didn't want that sin back. They were saying, God, we're yours. We're committed to you. And water, which symbolizes life, and water, which is pure, that's what we're pouring out to symbolize that our hearts are changed and our lives are different. We're not going back to the way we were, God. See what it says in verse 6? They poured it out before the Lord. What happened after they poured out the water? They fasted and they confessed. We've sinned against the Lord. Lamentations 2.19, it tells us to pour out our hearts before God. And Psalm 22.14, it's a psalm, a lament of David when in despair of all the bad stuff happening in his life. He says, I'm poured out like water. But nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to pour water out as a sacrifice. But Samuel did it to show God's people a point about committing themselves fully to Him, to serve Him only. There's one and only one fast commanded in Scripture. You notice here it says in verse 6, on that day they fasted and there they confessed. Only one fast commanded, and that is the fast on the day of the atonement, Yom Kippur, that Jewish people are supposed to fast on that day. They can fast on other days, but they're not commanded to fast on other days. But here, they chose to fast because it was symbolic. We're not going to consume food, and maybe it was that they didn't consume water on that day either, so that the hunger of our stomachs would remind us of our need to hunger and thirst for you, God, and for your righteousness. They confessed, we have sinned. And they didn't name it, or at least it's not recorded here. But I think there's a principle there. That when God convicts you of a sin, a specific sin, you should not just say, oh God, forgive me of my sin. You need to name the sin. If He's convicted you of a specific sin, you name the sin back to Him. Just like we try to teach our children. When you ask forgiveness, you don't just say, I'm sorry. You definitely don't do that. You say, will you forgive me for, and then you fill in the blank with what 
you did to offend or sin against the other person. The same thing is true of our relationship with God. When God's so specific to tell us how we sin, we need to confess back to Him how we've sinned and demonstrate our contrition and name the sin. They poured out water, they fasted, they confessed. And it says at the end of verse 6 that Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. Your version of Scripture might say Samuel judged Israel at Mizpah. And I think judged is the better translation. It means because there was confession of sin, because there was honest revival, there still needed to be some consequences spelled out. Because one party may have sinned against another party and they were there together. And they come and say to Samuel, Samuel, what do we do about this? Because there was still this sin and Samuel either names the consequence or says it's forgiven. And so when it says he's leader or judge the people there, it's, he's giving them direction. He's telling them what to do as a result of their sin. But notice what happens next. The people have done this amazing thing of gathering together to worship at the place known as Watchtower. They've poured out the water. They've fasted. They've confessed their sins to the Lord. Samuel has judged them on behalf of the Lord. But remember who it was that caused them to turn back to God? The Philistines. Look at verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came together and said, let's attack them. Well, why would you do that? If all the people are in one place, particularly if it's one mountain, even though they would have the advantage of the elevation, if you had more numbers, you could come up the mountain. You could slaughter them, right? Let's put an end to these Israelites once and for all, man. Let's take their land. Let's take everything we want. I mean, strategically, it looks like a good move for the Philistines. But look at verse 8. They, the people, said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. I love the fact that they said the Lord our God, not just the Lord or not just God. They were back in relationship with God. And isn't it just this way that when you make a significant commitment to the Lord, when you surrender to a calling, when you commit to do something you haven't done before, that the devil, the evil one, brings a test. Let's say, for instance, that you are convicted and say, I need to tithe. I need to give 10% or more of my income. And let's say you make a budget, and it's kind of tight, but you look at it and you say, I can give this 10%. Guess what's going to happen in the next month or two? You're going to have some major financial setback that's going to challenge your ability to tithe. Are you going to pay the bill, or are you going to trust God? And you're going to have to call. Make a decision. What are you going to do? Let's say that you've committed to love that person who's really difficult in your life and you feel like God's changed your heart and you're feeling love for them. Guess what? One of the very next times you see them, they're going to be so ugly and nasty to you. You're going to say, but God, didn't I just commit to love them? And the devil's stirring them up to put you to the test. Look at what happened here. The people of Israel had committed themselves to God to serve Him only. And then there is this test coming against them again. So what do they do? They cried out to Samuel. But they say to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that He may rescue us. They don't run home and get their spears to fight for themselves. They don't freak out and worry about what they're going to do. They call out to Samuel that God would fight for them. And then Samuel makes an offering. 
a suckling lamb and offered it up whole as a burnt offering. Again, that's something rare. You don't see that in the Old Testament, but there's something about it being a whole offering that Samuel did that. And God heard him. Look at how simple, how elegant the last phrase of verse 9 is. And the Lord answered him. He cried out to the Lord, that's the Lord God, on Israel's behalf, and the Lord God answered him. There's something to be learned here. When we pour out our hearts to God in confession, when we dedicate ourselves to God through something like fasting or commitment, then when we pray to God, God's going to hear us. We've restored our relationship with Him. We've consecrated ourselves to serve God. We've got to define that word. Consecrate means to set apart. If you don't know that, write it down. To set apart. Special. Different. It means instead of saying, I'm going to do things my own way, and I'm going to live for myself all the time, I'm saying, nope. I'm resisting the sinful temptations of my life and I'm setting myself apart for God's service. I am fully committed to Him. I'm going to serve Him and serve Him alone. And I'm going to trust Him to take care of me no matter what happens, no matter if the Philistines come against me, no matter how ugly that person acts, no matter what financial setback I have, I'm going to trust Him. And we consecrate ourselves to serve God alone. So you've got a question is how should I worship God in revival? In your life, what should you do? We saw the things that Israel did here in this instance. As I said, it was a rare thing to pour out water, but there was something symbolic about it. As I said, only once is it commanded that you must fast in the Old Testament, but fast or throughout the Old Testament when people are turning their hearts back to God. You think about what else they did earlier in the passage of Scripture. They rid themselves of all their foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They got rid of all those things. They prayed. They asked Samuel to pray for them. They committed themselves to God. They went up to a special place to worship, so they took time and effort and energy. These are all examples of what Israel did to worship God. But what is God calling you and I to do? Prayer is a key part of it. The great thing about prayer is you can pray anytime, anywhere, without anything or anybody. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him and he will answer you. When we're fully dependent on God, the circumstances of our life won't worry us as much. The problem is most of the time, most of us are over here on the pendulum. We're not depending on God. Therefore, circumstances tend to worry us or freak us out or make us angry or fill in the blank with whatever negative emotion or sin. But when we're fully dependent on God, we look at it and go, "Okay, the threat over there is real. It's still the Philistines. It's still that ugly person. It's still the bill I need to pay. However, I trust that God is going to help me deal with that circumstance even though I don't know how. And we worship Him because of that. Let's move to your third point. 
Your third point is counting on God to defend me. Counting on God alone to defend me. We had committing ourselves to God. Consecrating or setting ourselves apart for God. And now we have counting on God to defend me. But what's the difference? The first two were about you and I coming back to God and making sure our relationship with God was restored and right. But look at the difference to the third point. The third point is because we are back in a right relationship with God, because we have committed ourselves to serve Him alone, we can count on Him to defend us. The first two points were what we were going to do towards God. The third point is what God is going to do for us in response to our commitment, our consecration to Him. You see the swing, the change that takes place there. Look at verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew to engage in battle, but the Lord thundered. Now, I don't know what he did and how he did it with the thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic. Have you ever been in this church building when the alarm has gone off? That thing is so loud and so scary, it like jumbles your brain. Even though the passcode is just four digits. And you have to push the, you know, cancel thing. It's like, oh, I can't think, I can't think. I mean, I, I, the, the noise is so loud you can't think straight and it causes your heart to beat. And it, it freaked me out. I mean, if I was a criminal in here, I'd be like, whoa, let's get out of here. So God, in some way, made some noise, did something to freak the Philistines out in such a way that these guys that were trained for battle are freaked out and are running scared. And then the Israelites, did they not hear the same noise or hear it the same way? Did God perform more than one kind of miracle? I don't know. But the Israelites take up their swords or whatever they have with them, and it says they routed the Philistines. They ran them all the way back down the hill in one place and another. And did you see how it ended there in the verse 14? They eventually uh, restored towns that had been taken from them and even protected all their neighboring uh, peoples from the Philistines. There was a total about face in the power of the Philistines and their oppression and the fearfulness, and they struck at the Israelites and all their other neighbors. God did something. God defended them. They still had some work to do. They still had to go to battle. But God started it and did something powerful and mighty. In verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped us. There's another stone referenced in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, and it's probably not the same one, so... Maybe there are two Ebenezer stones in the antiquity of the Bible. But the same principle. Thus far, the Lord helped us. About 18 years ago at this time, um, I left a very lucrative job selling insurance. And I... Probably will never make as much in a year as a pastor, even 20 years from now, if I'm still a pastor and Jesus hadn't come back as I did in the year that I left that job. I'm not bragging. God did it. But I made a lot of money. 
And I left that job making a whole lot of money to take a job to be a pastor of a little church that paid me $20,000 a year plus a parsonage and insurance. And we moved into this parsonage that had this big front room with a big window like my wife had always wanted. And she wanted to have a baby grand piano in a room like that. And I was glad that we had this nice brick 2,000 square foot parsonage with a three-quarter acre yard and some farmland around us. It, it was nice in so many ways, but that front room, because we were moving from a little apartment, had no furniture in it. It was empty, and I almost felt a little ashamed. But more than that, I mourned for the fact that here we had the house that we could put the piano in she always wanted, but we had no money and no way to buy a baby grand piano. I'm making $20,000 a year. Do you know how much a baby grand piano costs? Even back then. So I had this desire in my heart to want to do this. And she had that desire. But I'll tell you what God did. Because I had made so much the year before, my tax return that next year was really quite nice. And her dad had a windfall financially. Unexpected. My dad had a windfall financially. Unexpected. And they knew the desires of our heart. And God provided for us the baby grand piano that if you go to my living room today, you'll see sitting there. And she's cringing as I'm telling this story because I like to call the piano Ebenezer. She doesn't like to call it that. I like to call it Ebenezer because when I least thought God could help, when I had the least money ever, God provided something that was amazing. A baby grand piano that cost more than a car. Back in those days, anyhow. A car I'd buy, anyhow. And they would provide music for my family and all of our guests for the rest of our married life. What an amazing testament to God's provision, God's strength. God knew the desires of our heart. And He gave us a piano when who thought we could have afforded it? We counted on God alone, and God did something for us. To confirm that he was God. Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped. You've got a question there. How do I need God to care for me? I'm sure somebody out there right now is going, well, you know, I'd like a baby grand piano too, Pastor Aaron. I don't know if you're going to get a piano. But what do you need God to do in your life to demonstrate his love for you? His provision for you. His protection for you. Are you crying out to God about that? And have you already checked to see, is there anything in your life that is hindering your prayers? Is there any sinfulness in your life? Any habit? Anything you need to confess? Any relationship that is broken that God's calling you to restore? That God is saying to you, if you will do this and demonstrate that you're wholehearted in your service to me, that I'm going to take care of you. What do I need God to take care of for me? We can answer that. We saw what God did for Israel. I told you what God did for us. What can He do for you? You have a final application question. In conclusion, how has God helped me thus far? When you consider your life and all the blessings of it, 
What do you count? What has God done for you? Have you praised him for that? Have you worshipped him for that? Have you thanked him for that? Have you given back to him out of that or because of that? Have you served him in response to that? Have you committed yourself to him in response to that? I would imagine if we're honest, we'd all see the many blessings God has given us and have all the more reason to commit ourselves to him, consecrate ourselves to him, serve him only and count on him to defend us, count on him to provide for us because he's still God and he always loves us. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're thankful for who you are. And though that you are just and righteous and you call sin, sin, that you love us and continually call us to you. And Father, we thank you for scriptures like this. Revival that seems so long ago and far away, but it reminds us of who you are and what you've called us to do. Father, it's our prayer that we'd fully commit ourselves to serve you. And then then we would count on you to defend us and provide for us whatever the need God, we pray for the person who's never trusted Christ as their Savior. If they need to make that commitment today, that they would do that right now. We pray for those of us who are Christ followers, yet we've wandered away, that we need to turn back right now. And we need to commit ourselves to you and pour out our confession and sin. And we need to show you that we're coming back. Whatever it is, God, would we answer now? As you call us, in Jesus' name, amen.